Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the Ogletree Deacons podcast. Karen Tynan and Kevin Bland here with our special guest, Kelly Burnish. Today, we're talking about safety culture and how companies can achieve an effective safety culture to drive reduced injuries, incidents, and near misses, and create a more holistic approach to safety in the workplace. So welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. I know this is a, a passion of yours talking about safety and safety culture. So let's start and talk a bit about your background. I'd like for you to share some of the highlights and important career achievements so that people can understand your viewpoint and lens on safety culture. Sure, sure. My pleasure. Well, I uh, worked for many years um, as a safety professional director of environmental health and safety um, in the amusement industry, but I've also done a lot of um, private consulting work um, really all over the world and, you know, just such a diversity of um, different types of businesses. I've been really, uh, really blessed that way. I've worked with um, municipalities and privacy. Um, I uh, worked with the city of Fort Collins in Colorado, who uh, just has done some really terrific work um, in the field of safety culture, um, and also, uh, you know, just a, a variety of different things. So really have been able to really see the diversity of industries around the world. And I always say, um, except for uh, working um, in maybe nuclear power, I think I've had experience with most <laughs> other industries and, and I don't know a thing about nuclear power, so I'm, I'm happy to stand back on that. But the thing I would say I'm most proud of, you know, all of that said and all the different clients that I've had and um, is really um, being one of the founding members of a group called Women in Safety Engineering, or it's now called Women in Safety Excellence, which is part of uh, the American Society of Safety Professionals. So we're celebrating our 21st anniversary this year, which is so hard for me to imagine. But Yay. 21, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But yeah, so we started that uh, 21 years ago, and I was we're just uh, getting ready to all meet up in. San Antonio, Texas, at the big American Society of Safety Professionals conference, and we're celebrating this really big milestone for us, but we're reflecting back on the first time we got together, and we I think we had three people at our meeting, and now we have thousands of members all over the world, and it's just been such a terrific um, experience and um, really something that I'm very, very proud of because we um, really focused on making sure that because women uh, weren't as prevalent in the safety industry as they are even now, um, you know, that they felt included and were supported. And we worked on some tough issues around like PPE for women and uh, why is 
workplace violence, the number one killer of women on the job, and um, why aren't there more uh, women in safety leadership in in high level positions? So three really um, you know important topics that we're still working on to this day, even after 21 years. So that's something that I'm particularly proud of too, and that has really given me purview to uh, the safety world as well. So Kelly, with that uh, background and experience, let's kind of segue and talk a little bit about safety cultures in companies based on uh, your experiences and what you saw work and didn't work. So can you kind of talk to the folks out there about what type of discussions and processes you've seen when safety values are woven in within the fabric of a company and what, what makes what makes that work? What's the What makes the company have a fabric of safety culture throughout top to bottom? I think that's really key, exactly what you said, that it's woven into that fabric. It's so important because a lot of people think, you know, we can do this or do that, you know, something really superficial and everything should be good and we can walk away from it from a safety perspective. But the reality is, is it has to be, I always say, part of the recipe of what we do. Um, yes, there are safety policies and procedures and so forth and training, but really safety should be part of that recipe. When we talk about, I'll just use an example uh, uh, that I was um, talking about today is, you know, someone is using a string trimmer to go out there in uh, the landscaping industry and trim. And we want to make sure that when we teach someone to use that equipment, safety is just part of that recipe. It isn't, hey, here's the safety procedure for this equipment, and now I'm going to show you how to use it. It's really it's part of how we use that piece of equipment, that safety is rolled right in there. The other thing that I really think about um, when, I, when I think about if safety culture, it really is part of an organization is teaching people how to evaluate risk. I have uh, this graphic that I often use when I um, conduct a class called Leading a Culture of Safety, where we really focus on leaders, um, you know, because oftentimes we say we want you to lead this culture of safety to our leadership, and they really don't know what you mean by that. So I teach this class, and I, I call it my safety nirvana, if you will, around what does it look like, a, a safety culture? What does it actually look like? And I think the bottom line is when you can get people to actually evaluate risk and to when they're faced with making a decision, they reach this fork in the road. And I'll just give you a super simple example here of, um, let's say you're painting and you need to get up a little bit higher. So do you stand on a chair or do you go and make that extra trip over to the utility closet and get a legitimate step stool that's going to be safer? How do you get people to that mindset of, when faced with that decision-making process, they actually choose the right way, right? And so that's just teaching people how to evaluate risk. And we all do it, even subconsciously. But right. it's training people and talking about it and um, demonstrating it and giving people that freedom to, to make those decisions. 
I have a little follow-up question to, to that, too, because this is something that, that I've experienced is everyone's, for lack of a better term, risk tolerance is different. So I used mm-hmm. to be an iron worker, so something mm-hmm. to me is not that risky to where someone that, let's mm-hmm. say, all the – they have a normal everyday life crossing the streets risky to me that's not risky because i was building high rises how do you how mm-hmm. do you get that across the the culture mm-hmm. within because it's mm-hmm. sometimes it's so individualized in what you're explaining like like the paint painting the wall somebody hey that's no big i can reach it off of the 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 chair versus the person that gets the ladder but they're different, mm-hmm. two different thought processes how, how do you get that culture through the through the fabric uh, with that in your mm-hmm. experience yeah. You know what? I think it's really the secret sauce to that is storytelling, you know, and this whole training piece. So training obviously is critical to a safety culture and ongoing training. It's not a one and done. It's, you know, constant, um, you know, with the organization that I'm working with right now, we do a weekly safety talk that we do a stand up at all of our locations every week to talk about a specific safety topic in addition to all the other stuff that we do. But it's, it's really taking that opportunity to talk, train and tell stories. I always think that I really, really, and I'll, I'm sure I'll, I'll talk about this again uh, during our time together today, but I really just like talking about legging indicators like, talking about injuries. I think there's a place for them, but you know, when we're, we're talking about metrics, I don't like to over index on talking about injuries, but I think what really makes a difference is this ability to tell stories and to be vulnerable and talk about maybe something stupid that you did as a leader. I think it's really important. I got you too know. many of those, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. See, we all have lots of stories that way. And that's how people learn. So I was saying, you know, with over-indexing on, on injuries, when people talk about industry rates, yes, it has a place in our world. But the reality is when you say to someone, I have a 3.7 industry rate, it means nothing to most people. But when you tell them about a story that they can relate to, uh, I'll just tell a story on myself and I'm on this painting kit because I'm painting the inside of my house. I was opening a paint can. This wasn't just recently, but I always think about it now when I open a paint can with a screwdriver, which is what a lot of people do. The screwdriver slipped and it gouged the palm of my hand um, in a pretty serious injury. So that's something that people can relate to. Like when you do your training or you're doing your safety talks or you're having that conversation with people out in the field. I remember I stopped an employee who was pressure washing the inside of a a trash can at the city and um, he had no personal protective equipment on. So I asked him to pause for a second. I just talked to him and I said, Hey, you know, I, in my previous job, there was this woman who was doing exactly what you're doing. And when she was pressure washing inside that garbage can, she hit a penny and it flew up and hit her in the face and knocked her front tooth out. Wow. So, so that's something that people can relate to, not to say, Hey, you know, um, 
we have a, a 4.3 indice rate or, you know, we've had five injuries or something like that. It's actually telling them stories of things that have either happened to you or you've seen happen or make it relatable. Um, I think that's part of it. You know, we have a lot of policies and procedures that are written in language um, that isn't relatable by most people. You know, there's, we, and I know you two are, are attorneys, so I'll, I'll go gentle on this. But I, I, I um, was an iron worker longer than I was an attorney. So. <laughs> okay, so I'm, well. Yeah, that, I'm pretty thick-skinned there. <laughs> but, you know, we tend to insert legal, um, you know, wording and wording that just isn't relatable to people. So make it right. real. Tell stories. Like, get it on the the on everyone's radar that they can relate to. No, I, I like your comments on that. Now, now let's elevate a little bit and specifically talk about a company's leadership. So how are these C-suite level people, whether it's a mm-hmm. vice president at a company, you know, someone high up, maybe not even a person in safety, how does a company's leadership create a successful and positive safety culture? What do you see there that that's worked from people at that level? Well, I will say, and I feel really strongly about this because I've been in this situation in my past where there's this necessity for safety for obvious reasons, but there isn't a real belief by the top leadership, by the executive leadership, the C-suite, whatever you want to call it, there isn't the value there, and you can feel it. Um, you want to have that executive team completely bought into what you're doing, not just a superficial, hey, we're doing this because we have to. It's got to be something they really believe in and have skin in the game um, and have meaningful metrics that everyone is held accountable to in the right way. So if there isn't that going on, it's almost impossible to have a really robust safety culture. You can have pockets of it, but unless your executive team is really committed, really committed, it's just really hard. And I would say the other piece of that is have them be a part of the design. If you're revamping or you're rebooting what you're doing around safety culture, have them help create your mission and vision. Have them help create the metric that would be most meaningful to them. And it's our job as safety professionals to teach those executive leaders what should be of value to them and, and help them understand that. Because a lot of people just default to that. What does our indice rate look like, you know, in the BLS statistics or, you know, whatever. Yeah, the, I think it's our folks. job. The, right. num- yeah, the exactly. numbers folks, Kelly, right? <clears throat> yeah. Now, you had touched a little bit on this, on, on training and, of course, driving um, safety culture uh, through training. If you can expand on that just a little bit, and we also have, there's so many different types of companies, and I know you've got experience with different types of companies out there, but it's one thing to have a construction company or maybe um an amusement park where you uh, you have kind of a, a captive audience and and really specific t- things you're training on and, and like your point with 
the stories, but also making sure it, 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 it makes sense. I always use that term when I was an iron worker. I wanted it to make sense to me. The, the, the safety mm-hmm. person's tell, get training me on something and it made sense and logical sense. But what do yeah. we do in the case of like where we have, you know, a lot of gig workers or we have staffing companies mm-hmm. that have mm-hmm. folks that are going to all these different places? How can you have mm-hmm. a really good, terrific training program that keeps that safety culture going in that uh, type of industry? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about um, the fact that you you need to make it real and make it relevant, as you said, um, and it, make it so that people understand from their point of view. I really, really hate it when I see training programs that have like canned videos that have nothing to do with the kind of work <laughs> that someone is doing. I mean, nothing yeah. is a bigger turnoff than that. Yeah. Well, I can think of maybe a couple things, but that's a pretty big turnoff. That's another, that's um, another podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Ugh. Gosh, it's awful. But the good news is that technology being the way that it is now, I've just like been going crazy with all kinds of great ways to teach people about safety. Gosh, I mean, the, the sky is the limit. And now with like AI and all of that, it's just literally the sky is the limit. There's so much you can do. There's so much fun stuff. You know, we, we talk about technology and I think that's super important, especially in certain realms. The company that I'm doing work for right now, they're very much out in the field. They're making it happen every day, cutting grass, installing um, you know, landscape features, climbing trees, doing all kinds of stuff. And so maybe technology isn't the answer um, for them. We do a lot of getting out in the field, um, talking, and actually, um, you know, conducting hands-on training. Listening to employees is so important. Like having that t- ability for two-way communication um, for them to give you feedback um, is super important too, you know. So, uh, like I said, there the training is so many options now that we never had before. But I think that the lesson is still the same. You have to make it relevant. The, uh, I'll just say it again because I, I feel it's part of my safety nirvana is uh, the storytelling is so so important to make it real, be vulnerable. And have people understand, we know you're not robots, you're people. And there are going to be times when mistakes happen. Um, We acknowledge that. But here's what we're doing to try to reduce the chances of something like that happening. Um, I just wanted to follow up, too, on the gig workers that you mentioned. That is obviously becoming a a really big trend um, out of necessity, frankly, and our obligation as safety professionals, I feel very passionate about this, is all the more important to people like that, gig workers, people that are coming from staffing agencies, um, because, you know, they may not have the kind of buy-in that your regular employees do. They're coming, um, you know, from who knows what kind of experience level, our obligation to train them and make sure that they understand what they're doing is just as important, if not more important than our regular workers, frankly. Well, those are great points. And I want to ask you, we've talked about training, we've talked a bit about numbers, communications. I'd like to 
to close out with asking you about accountability and setting specific or particular safety goals within a company. What do you see that works well with setting specific, whether it's a numbers goal, a number that's related to accountability in a particular department or with a process? What do you think about that? Are there some dangers there, some best practices? Yeah, definitely. That that can be a really tough thing to navigate, frankly, because when you're talking about accountability, you want to be really, really careful to number one, okay, so I think I talked about something else that was my pet peeve, but probably my number one pet peeve from a safety professional perspective is when we have those countdown clocks that um, say it's been 327 days since our last I think we're all familiar with those. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, newsflash, that does not drive uh, safety culture. And in fact, it is counterproductive to that. It really discourages people from reporting because if I'm that person that gets hurt that day and we've gone 342 days since the last time there was an injury, do you think I'm going to be the one that spoils that record or stops ice cream or pizza party or whatever way you celebrate those things. Right. That is something that as soon as I see that, you know, whether I'm walking into a client or, you know, in some of our own work areas, that tells me something right there about your safety culture, that and housekeeping. Those are the two, the two big markers for me. But in terms of accountability, I think you just need to focus on, making sure that certain things are happening around safety culture. So, for example, are we conducting our pre-trip vehicle inspections? Are we having our weekly safety talks? Are we completing our training? Are we having our safety committee meetings? Are we reviewing after-action reviews? Uh, Those kind of things that are all indicative of safety culture. I think, again, there's a time and place for counting injuries and talking about those things. I I don't want to completely dismiss that. But when you're talking about uh, accountability, I think that's where you push the accountability. Again, you're completing those things that I just talked about, like pre-trip inspections and safety talks and and, uh, safety committees. That's where you have to drive accountability with your leadership, all levels. And the leadership needs to drive that with um, their direct reports to make sure that that's happening. And then you don't get into that situation of, well, I was afraid to talk about safety, or I was afraid to say that I was injured, or I was afraid to stop or pause work because there was a safety concern. That's another part of my safety nirvana is having that in your culture is the not only the ability to, but the ex- the expectation that someone must stop or pause work if there's a safety concern or, um, you know, some confusion about what needs to be accomplished. So it's really those kind of things that, that we want to drive so that people, and this is a whole other topic that I could speak on forever, is, you know, psychological safety, creating that psychological safety in an organization where people feel like it's perfectly natural for them to talk about safety concerns, near misses, 
um, you know, pausing those near misses, those kind of things, I, I think are just so, so important. It sounds like Kelly, you've already come up with our next podcast we're going to do together. So <laughs> I appreciate that. This is all really great stuff. And I hope that everyone listening got as much out of this as I know Karen and I did. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Karen and Kevin and our special guest, Kelly. Look for our blog articles on ogletree.com. And thanks again, Kelly, for all your time today and joining us uh, on this podcast. Oh my gosh. It- it was totally my pleasure, and as you can see, I I can easily talk about this because it's something that I really feel passionate about. And Okay, thanks so much, dear. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.